Hi, and welcome back. This week, we're going to be talking about Americana, or the Great American Road Trip, which you already know if you read the episode title, but Mm -hmm. we had a lot of fun with this one, I think, looking at different episodes um, from sort of a different angle than what we've done so far. Would Mm -hmm. you agree? Yeah, it was also very exciting for me because I haven't actually ever seen Route 666 or Roadkill before. And I have to say Route 666 had a lot of implications for Dean as a character and I was kind of mad I'd never seen it. I skipped a lot of the first season Mm -hmm. episodes, which looking back, some of them were pretty reasonable to skip. Like, I could have skipped Bugs. Nobody needs to see Bugs. But, <laughs> like, Route 666 kind of really changed how I think of Dean as a character. Ooh, okay. In, a, like, a non-insignificant way. And I am really excited <laughs> to talk more about that. But, yeah, I, uh, I was just sort of mad that I had never seen it before. <laughs> I actually have some feelings about Route 666 as well. Although I had actually seen all of the episodes we watched for this, which I think that's, it's pretty funny to me that I had seen all of them and you hadn't because out of the two of us, I'm the one more likely to skip episodes. <laughs> that's definitely true. It's definitely, I think, I think when we were going, when I was going through season one originally, I was watching it with either you or somebody who's like oh I just want to watch more of season two so I think I skipped a bunch but oh mm -hmm. that would make sense yeah yeah Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk uh about road trips in particular also I'm excited to talk about road trips in particular because I've been hinting at in several of our other episodes about how I have this big rant about how it's always uh, (laughs) summer in Supernatural and there's never any snow. And then two of these episodes had snow in them and I was so pissed. And I was like, no, that beautiful rant that I've been cultivating and nurturing and saving for this episode that I've been completely undermined by two of the five episodes we watched for it. I was, I was quite <laughs> Wait, which episodes were those? I, like, don't remember. I, maybe I just wasn't paying attention to whether there was snow or not. So the one with the ghost lady, which I, is roadkill, has snow uh-huh. in it. As does Route uh, 666. So it's the two I'd never seen. Both that's snow in them. <laughs> probably why well, that's I, fair, though. Yeah, which is probably why I didn't think there was any snow in Supernatural. Right, because the two episodes that have snow, you hadn't seen. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. So yeah, let's go ahead and dive into it. Um, I think we have to start with, you know, we're titling this episode Americana, which isn't really like an academic term so much as slang or a layperson's term that gets tossed about. But if that's going to be the theme of our episode, we kind of have to start by defining it, Yeah, which was a little more difficult than we had anticipated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, America, I don't think I'd ever really thought that much about Americana as a concept before this. I sort of just associated with blue jeans and faded American flags and sort of a general visual aesthetic and less of a less of something to really use in a literary sense. So uh, mm-hmm. this is definitely, I think, an uh, interesting way to examine things from my end. Yeah, and I think I use the tag Americana a lot on Tumblr in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way. Mm. Um, so it's it's like something that's like on my mind because I like classify things as Americana on my blog. But sometimes I do it in like a joking way or I basically tag everything that has to do with the U.S. as Americana. (laughs) (laughs) It's like America. Yeah, exactly. But I think this is like an important concept to Supernatural as you'll see as we go through this episode. Um, Yeah, we've talked a lot about Supernatural being an American show and talked about very American themes and the American genres that it draws on uh, such as the western and the detective which are 
obviously not exclusively American concepts, but are things that have greatly informed uh, general American culture over the years. And so I think that to judge the show by its Americanness, as you will, is at the very least a very interesting thing to do. And particularly the concept of the road trip is a quintessentially American idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that so much of Supernatural feeds into a concept of a never-ending road trip and uses that road trip motif to such an extent that I think that there's a lot to talk about with regards to that. And I think the road trip is a really important part of what Americana is. Even things that aren't necessarily immediately associated with a road trip that are Americana or that are iconic of Americana are things you might expect to encounter while on a road trip. Um, So we went onto social media and asked you guys what Americana means to you as sort of a jumping off point for this conversation. And on Tumblr, Sewing from Magic uh, said, 50s diner and shady barns where someone buried the bodies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that one. And over on Twitter, Liz, I actually thought this was really interesting. Liz sent us just a link I think it was just a link to the music video, but maybe it was the name, something, um, for the song Chicken Fried by the Zac Brown Band. Definitely have not heard that song. Oh, okay. We need to listen to that song right now. (laughs) Okay, but we probably can't actually use it on the podcast because of copyright. (laughs) Right, right. We'll have to edit it out. So sorry, guys. You're not going to hear the song, but we're going to quickly listen to this song. Sounds good. Sounds good. I actually really like this song. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad song. I'm just saying it's very quintessentially a country music song. It is. I find it kind of heartwarming, though. Aw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do actually... I like it. I mean, it's it's got a... I think that there's a lot of things to be said about... Um, there are criticisms to make of the country music genre, but it's also a lot of fun a lot of the time. Yeah, I let's not get into that because I have a lot of feelings. Yes, this will entirely derail our entire episode. <laughs> yeah, another time. Anyway, so yeah. we were we were trying to define. Oh no, no wait, we were. Uh, so somebody sent you that that song as a way of defining Americana. Yeah, which I think you know, like that's that's a good way to do it. Like it's a very like it's like bluegrass influenced country, which is like the most American genre of music, like the most stereotypically American genre of yeah. music. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there are so many, the U.S. has created jazz and rap and country music and so many other genres of music. I would, it's hard to say which one is, but I, I agree that that is probably the most, like when people are thinking of America, America, that's probably <laughs> the first thing they think of. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's basically just a list of like, really iconic American things. <laughs> yep. So uh, how would how would you define Americana now that we've sort of gone through? Yeah. Some thoughts? Yeah. So I think first I want to, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to hedge what I'm saying with okay. a quote from this guy Hampton Sides who like wrote a book about iconic American things and so probably knows what he's talking about. (laughs) He writes that Americana, even in its halcyon days of um, roadside attractions, was never an accurate or nuanced distillation of our massively complicated culture. Uh, So even though we're talking about Americana, I want to start with this idea that Americana is an iconic form or a stereotype that Americans have about our own culture and the items and aspects of our own culture that we value or don't value rather than 
an in-depth description of what the United States is actually like in all of its nitty-gritty complexity. So I have, there are some components. I think that Americana is probably a little too complex of a term and one that everyone sort of has different ideas about for us to come up with like a single correct definition of Americana. Right, because it's going to mean different things to different people. Right, exactly. But I think that we have developed a pretty good working definition. Um, And if you don't know what a working definition is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this definition isn't perfect, but it's what we're going to work with. (laughs) (laughs) So there are a couple elements that we sort of identified as being important to our working, to figuring out what our working definition is. First is this idea of folk culture, which is the sort of the verbal customary and material cultures of Joe Everyman. Just like everyday people, usually like the working class. And so often things that are of little moral, ethical, class, so on and so forth, consequence, um, things that sort of make up the everyday fabric of being a part of the working class or peasant class or whatever it is in your society that's sort of folk culture and so we identified folk culture especially the material culture Mm -hmm. as being an important aspect of what americana is we also identified um, this sense of agrarian nostalgia Um, so nostalgia for a lost past be it you know, the 1950s or the 1900s or the 1800s, this idea of your grandparents' life. Yeah, which Americana definitely seems to have in spades. Like, we keep getting references back to the 1950s uh, in particular as a decade to look at for uh, drawing on a lot of Americana stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's this idea of the melting pot, so the importation of immigrant folklore and culture um, from other places around the world. And so ideas and stories that people have brought over from the old country are also, can also be an important part of Americana and how those things take a new shape in the U.S. So sort of going from that idea of Um, Americana being related to this idea of folk culture. Um, Americana, we've sort of talked about how Americana isn't the way American culture really is, but instead is sort of a stereotypical or idealized or iconic form of American culture. And sort of going from this idea of it being related to folk culture Um, In particular, sort of the culture of the middle and working class. So thinking about things like like cornfields and baseball and apple pie. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, as in a lot of American society, there's desire for upward mobility. And I think that's a lot of why there's also a lot of middle class cultural signifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense. So like, for example, like mm-hmm. road trips are a relatively inexpensive form of vacation, but mm-hmm. it's still like a vacation you go on with your family um, and you like eat at diners and buy gas and are like spending money in a more mm-hmm. affluent it's still way. a leisure activity, even if it is a leisure activity that theoretically would be in the reach of more people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kind of wonder if that's not part of the reason why the road trip is such an important aspect of Americana, at least the way we're thinking about it. So we're talking about the class dynamics of Americana, um, Mm -hmm. I feel like. And I think that that is a really important thing to discuss in the context of Supernatural because Supernatural is a show that deals primarily with 
with people in lower middle class, mm-hmm. lower middle classes. And I think that it's interesting because I think that the general assumption that it's a, a middle class activity to go on a road trip is um, definitely true. And I think that that was established during a time period where the middle class was really idealized in American culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting to, I think that's an interesting point to bring up because it is something that's both uniquely American in that uh, you would spend two weeks of your summer vacation or whatever it was or less tra- like in a car driving around and that was the whole point because it's it's a uniquely American combination of um, having access to gas and enough disposable income and that both roads are good enough and the cars and gas and food and everything are all cheap enough and spaced out in such a way that it would be feasible to go on a road trip as well as there just being like the economy surrounding road trips where you can go and you can see the world's biggest olive string or the grand canyon or something like that there are actual things to see and um i mean i've taken road trips in different countries before and it's not as though you can't do that in places like croatia (laughs) but it does have a very different feel to it because there's so much of American culture that idealizes the road trip. Like one of my favorite movies is um, when I was younger is Elizabeth town, which is basically just about somebody's father dying and going on a road trip to sort of deal with that. Mm-hmm. And or at least at the conclusion of the movie, Orlando Bloom goes on a road trip to sort of deal with the fact of his father's death and the significance of the idea of the road trip as a healing mechanism in American culture is can't be underestimated and I think that really comes back to Jack Kerouac and on the road yeah yeah and I think also Grapes of Wrath in an interesting way that also Mm -hmm. kind of ties into this class component Mm -hmm. because there's a really strong cultural memory I think in the U.S. of people during the Great Depression going on road trips quote-unquote to go from the Dust Bowl to California um, or just like hobos going from one place to another looking for temporary work. I mean, one could almost, I think one could argue that the entire driving dogma of the United States as a country and as a culture is that the- Is a road trip? Yeah. Well, I mean like- No, sorry. I agree with you. I just think it's funny. Um, (laughs) Well, like- (laughs) So, like, the whole purpose, theoretic, like, the way that it's taught, at the very least, is that um, America was founded by people who left Europe to start a better life for themselves. And so, like, the, the concept that if you leave the place you are currently in to go to a new place, that will solve your problems. And I think that concept just, like, is so ingrained in American culture. And I, I think it's a very human thing. Um, and so I don't want to just like co-opt like this like very human thing and be like, oh, this is American. But I do think that there's something very like fundamental to the American psyche about the idea of like going to a new place to start over and like that you have the option always. And like you see this everywhere with if you look at the history of the colonies in the US and like early colonial period, like there are so many instances where like there was a disagreement in a group and like one part of the group split off to form its own colony. And like, that's how like half the other colonies were founded. It happens. Sorry, not to interrupt you, but that is such a Protestant thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, but it's like the the concept that like, if you don't like the place you're in, move to a new place Mm -hmm. and start out over. And like the idea of physical mobility being linked to spiritual or mental mobility is so tightly wound that it's not even something I think that Americans would even question that as a concept. Like it's, especially because we do have so much land and like, and this has been super toxic in our culture and has led to a lot of historical tragedies and a lot of really shitty things done to, to native people and people of color, like with manifest destiny and trail of tears and like all that sort of stuff. All mm-hmm. of this is sort of like driven around this concept of the more space we have and the more like, places we can go, the more opportunities we have. Yeah, I agree. And I think that actually brings up a good point about Americana and the way that it's tied into white American culture in particular, Yes, um, which isn't to say that like 
you know, people of color can't engage with the idea of Americana or that things about people of color can't be part of the Amer- Americana experience or definition. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if we're talking about Americana in broad strokes, I think it is sort of wrapped up in white American culture in particular, in a way that a lot of things that um, a lot of stereotypes Americans hold about their own culture often are. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially road trips are a really good example of this. I was recently learning about the Green Book um, mm-hmm. in American culture, which is a or American history, which is a book that a a black oh I want to say that they were a chef or uh, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know as much as, about this as I should, but there was a book published by a Black publisher, uh, which was basically a list of all the places that it was safe for Black people to go on road trips. So restaurants that would, would not deny them service and places to stay that wouldn't, like, that would actually allow people to stay during segregation and Jim Crow era, and, or post-Jim Crow era, sorry, but during the, this, the, the, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, I think that that's a really good example of the sort of challenges that people of color faced. It's not to say that they didn't engage in uh, road trip culture or anything like that, but it's just that there were more limitations on them than than non-people, uh, than white people. And I think that's something important to acknowledge when we're talking about all of this, that it's not, uh, that a lot of it is very white culture because there's a lot of privilege in the U.S. being white and you can just do things that and you don't have to think about them mm-hmm. and people of color have engaged in those sort of things all the time throughout history and it's just generally been harder for them and there's been more barriers. Yeah yeah that's a good point point. and I think you can kind of see that in one of the episodes that we talked about that we're talking about for this um, episode of the podcast Route 666 Uh, It sort of explicitly addresses this idea of roads being potentially hazardous places for people of color in ways Mm -hmm. that they're just not for white people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Supernatural in general is a very white show. We've talked about this. (laughs) I think I was, I mean, I talked about this before, but this is the first time I'd seen Route 666. And I was just so shocked because it was a Supernatural episode that um whether it dealt with this well or not it at least did address um racial tensions in the U.S. and racism which I was just shocked by that there was an episode that did that because most of the time it's sort of ignored in favor of like having this like in, in ignored in the like in order to talk about this made-up supernatural universe mm-hmm. and and so it sort of like buys into the default of like white culture being the one that's around um so it's kind of I was just really surprised and I think that that says something about how often they (laughs) address this these sort of concepts yeah Yeah. the only other episode I can think of that even like off the top of my head that even kind of tries to go there is bugs and bugs is not a good example I tried to wipe bugs from my mind my memory I don't think I remember anything about it and I'm kind of happy about that oh my god (laughs) it's um I'm sure Supernatural wasn't trying to be racist (laughs) I mean yeah but the the, (laughs) trying not to be racist and uh actually being racist are not mutually exclusive (laughs) yep Mm -hmm. yeah it um bugs is the one where like there's some development going up over an old Native American burial ground. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that that's such a trope in horror. Like, I'm not trying to excuse Supernatural being racist, but like also like that's a, there's a problem with the genre as well. <laughs> like an interesting anxiety that Americans have about our own past and the way that native people have been treated but it's also always an a burial ground which has this implication that like native people no longer live in the u.s which is like one of the like big 
misconceptions about Native people, I'd say, in popular American culture, that's especially popular white American culture, because there are a lot of Native tribes and a lot of Native people that are alive and doing a lot of cool things in the U.S. And a lot of times we, like, white culture tends to think of tribes as and Native people as, like, dead and killed off and that sort of thing. And, like, I think that there's an important aspect to that to, like, acknowledge that white people came in and killed, like, millions and millions of Native people, and it was a huge genocide, and it was horrible. But it's also um, one of the aspects of genocide is that you try and portray the culture and the people against which you committed genocide as having been in the past and having been dead and being dead currently, and that's just not true. And I think that it sort of buys into this, like, stereotype about like native culture no longer existing and like native peoples no longer being around which is really not true and that's sort of like a racist caricature in and of itself yeah yeah and I think like in some ways I think it's just more comfortable for people to think of those things um, being in the past yeah yeah exactly it's like oh it's easier for people to be like, this is terrible and it happened hundreds of years ago than it is to think about, this is terrible and it still is impacting the lives of people today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was before, um, oh, what's the, um, what was the big protests that were, that were happening in Dakota? In the Dakota oh, uh, Standing Rock. Standing Rock? No, yes. Yep. Yeah. And I think that Standing Rock brought a lot of, I think it brought a lot of attention to uh, mm-hmm. Native American issues to a certain segment of the population when it was happening. But I mean, still, like, <laughs> the amount of, like, Native American issues I think the average American hears about is probably minor and minuscule. Yeah. Uh, going back to, like, Americana and road trips in general. So, obviously... People of color in the U.S. in this regard, like in any regard, have had more barriers uh, to entry than white people. And so, and the like sort of stereotypical cultural popular imagining, a lot of Americana is, is mostly based on like a, a, a wider version of American culture, especially because it was established as a nostalgic, or we, we just got, we described it as like the nostalgic, uh, being nostalgic about the recent past, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So, and the recent past, depending on how you look at it, could be 1920s, 1930s, through 1950s, 1960s, and that has not, and that is obviously a time where um, America was even, had even more structural barriers to people of color than it does now. So I think that mm-hmm. uh, just as built into as part of Americana that that's those barriers exist because you can't can't really take the culture from the context it was created in and so I think that yeah that's just an aspect of this and you kind of have to take the good with the bad in these sort of things and acknowledge the bad yeah I think you know Americana in many ways we're kind of talking about how Americana is very white just as an aspect of what it is and what it does and at the same time, Americana is very much preoccupied with the middle class and the working class. <laughs> and I think that's interesting to me in terms of Supernatural, because Supernatural obviously does almost the exact same thing. It's, it doesn't really dwell too heavily on race. <laughs> but we've kind of talked before about the ways in which Supernatural really draws heavily on working class experiences. So like we talked about how um, this narrative of Sam leaving his family to go to college and Dean staying behind to continue the family business Mm -hmm. uh, and the tensions that creates is sort of a working class narrative and about when we talked about the Christmas episode, we talked about how John Winchester having to miss holidays because he was working Mm -hmm. is also um, sort of a working class experience that Mm -hmm. some viewers would find familiar. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's just really interesting to me that 
Supernatural basically recreates that aspect of Americana beat for beat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I think that the the class aspect of it is a is something that I, is not something I picked up on immediately. But the more I talk about it, the more I realize is sort of integral to the narrative, at least in the first couple of seasons of Supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes back to the sort of idealization that Americana places on the middle class and really makes... It's funny because it makes it has this sort of duality of, yeah, they're middle class in, like, money and culture and all of these sort of things, but within the, like, special culture that they are in, they're elites. They're, mm-hmm. they're essentially princes of a... Of, first, we learn of a hero, like, they're, they're the sons of a hero, and then mm-hmm. later on, we learn that they're actually part of a dynastic family with the Campbells that make them legit, like, hunter royalty, basically. And it's just interesting, the, like, the sort of, like, acknowledgement and homage to the concept of being a working class hero and, like, such a strong emphasis on that aspect of who they are. They're not, like, typical American elites where they're, like, oh, I'm going to go play golf or, like, live in my fifth house or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. they don't really aspire to and they kind of look down on that. But also with, on the flip side of that, there's, like, that wish fulfillment of, like, they don't really have to worry about money and they, within the society that they actually find the most important, they are really significant players and really important people. Like, significant. And it's not because, and they're important people in their own right, but it's also they have significant ties to other people who are important. Um, which I think is um, in a really interesting thing to have in an American show because <laughs> I remember somebody saying something about um, how the U.S. has this really weird thing where um, we obviously have a political system that's not built or that's theoretically not supposed to be built on dynasties. And yet we have families who have been in power for like significant amounts of years like the Bushes or the Clintons and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. like we actually have more dynasties than like modern America or modern British politics because <laughs> like it's not like Theresa May's daughter or I don't know if she has any children but like, uh-huh. like she's running for prime minister right now like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so I think that there's a there's a little bit of like a, a contradiction in American culture where we like don't we like profess to not really be interested in dynasties and that sort of thing but in actuality we we sort of love them it's like um when the uh, when the royal wedding was happening i think that the americans were way more excited than the british like, yeah americans love the like sort of pomp and ceremony and like some of that is the fact that we can enjoy it without having to pay for it whereas like if you're right. british and you're looking at that wedding you're like oh my tax dollars bye <laughs> So I think that there's an aspect of that. But I think that Americans really love that, like, concept of dynasties and, like, mm-hmm. being related to famous people and, like, royalty in, a, like, a really interesting way because that's just not part of our actual political structure. And yeah. so it's, it's like a fantasy structure that we all sort of, and it seems to be very popular in the American psyche to me. Right. I'm not related to Gerard Way, but I wish I was because he's a major f- hottie. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so yeah, I think that, yeah, it's just really interesting that, like, I think that there's, there's, there's this duality to the Winchesters and that they're obviously this huge wish fulfillment, like, who they are as people is just huge, it's competency porn, it's, like, they get to be totally badass and, like, they have this like secret life that normal people don't understand and can't really access. And like, they're just so cooler, so much cooler than anybody else. Um, but also like, on the other hand, they are, and I think Bella really highlights this really well where they're like, yeah, but they're also just guys driving around the country in a car living in shitty motels. <laughs> like, Yeah. And they are like ultimately like tragic heroes well, yeah. in a way that's, not actually that uncommon in American folktales, now that I think about it. Um, There's, I mean, also, I feel like, 
I I shouldn't say this actually. I was gonna say something about the superhero genre, um, which is very like quintessentially an American genre and tragic heroes than that. But I don't actually know enough about the superhero genre. I know more about the Japanese superhero genre than I do about the American superhero genre. So I'm gonna just shut up. <laughs> yeah, I I think I probably know a little bit more about American superhero stuff, but I also couldn't really speak to the idea of tragic heroes in that um, because mm-hmm. I'm usually looking to that genre for upbeat things. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it does tie back to the Western and uh, detective genres, mm-hmm. um, which I think uh, the detective genre in particular loves its tragic heroes. Like you can't be a detective hero without having some amount of tragedy they're not about like those those stories are not about people who are at the height of their game they're always about somebody like at the end of the rope just trying to like hold on to their morals yeah the only example of an exception i can think of are the the nick and nora movies uh the thin man and sequels and like part of the reason that those were so successful is because they were sort of a subversion Mm. right like they wouldn't have worked if everyone had just expected that they would be happy (laughs) yeah yeah i think the western as well has its fair share of tragic heroes i think sometimes unintentionally tragic heroes Mm -hmm. or we see a lot of like people sacrificing their their personal happiness for the sake of civilization Mm. you know the wandering stranger who can't exist in this new society so he has to leave yeah but a lot of the especially the early genre works are end with the hero having a happy ending yeah or at least uh i don't know like i always when i watch those and the guy is like he like the dust settles and he like kisses the girl and then he leaves forever like, oh, that's fair. Maybe the film tries to portray that as a happy ending, but it doesn't feel like a happy ending to it's me. It's definitely bittersweet at best. No, that's fair. That's a good point. I think actually, though, our discussion of class sort of brings me to this idea of the role that consumerism plays. In yes! <laughs> One of my favorite topics. <laughs> yes, I, I knew you were waiting for this. We've kind of talked before about this idea of kitsch and Mm. um, the role that that plays. So kitsch is like, if you're not familiar with what kitsch is, it's basically this idea of things that are like kind of tacky or like everyday. So when you think about like the classic example is like the dogs playing poker painting mm-hmm. um or like very... figurines or like snow globes things that are like sort of useless but you have around for aesthetic purposes yeah yeah and not like things that are going to cost you a lot of money we're talking like things you buy at like the rock shop for two bucks um, although i mean now i'm thinking about like how i would love to get a, like a chunk of amethyst and like put it on my mantle or something like that and i'm like oh that it me it's me <laughs> that's okay that's okay <laughs> but i i think that americana quiche in general has a very distinctive look and feel to it and it's not it's not quite the same as like other quiche because you you can have um, so you can have kitsch, like, of any type. You can have, like, especially, um, I think, like, the first thing that I think of is, like, little Eiffel Tower figurines that mm-hmm. people bring back from Paris when they go on trips there. Like, that's sort of the quintessential uh, kitsch for me. But with Americana, the kitsch can be much more, like, I think of, like, old beaten up, so- like, gas signs and, um, like, can- like, old cans of, of processed food. Um, and a lot of like really uh, like things that are iron or other type or wood and have um, either a practical or a semi-practical purpose that have been regulated to being decorative. Oh, okay. I think for me, like mm-hmm. the most 
the two most iconic like kitschy american things are those like machines where you put in like a penny and two quarters and it like stamps the penny Mm -hmm. into a shape which by the way is illegal those are technically illegal oh yeah because it's defacing you as currency (laughs) that's funny i never even thought about that yeah oh my god those are at every national park Mm -hmm. i don't know what it is like they're everywhere oh my gosh so i think about those and the other like classic kitschy american thing that immediately comes to mind for me are like pink flamingos like Ah! ornaments (laughs) that's fair no, that's a good point. I mean, I think of those as, like, less American and more, like, Floridian, so. <laughs> anyway, um, like, it's kitschy. The, like, flamingos, pink flamingos are definitely kitschy. Yeah, and that sort of uh, ties into um, a point that you had made about the relationship between uh, kitsch and consumerism and Americana and how, even though Americana isn't necessarily consumerist a lot of it is just because of the way that the u.s is set up as a capitalist society but also like the buying of like kitschy items um like you were talking about is a very like americana thing like which is sort of a weird thing for a folk like something that's that's so steeped in folk culture because folk culture tends to not be very consumerist it's very much like what you can make yourself and what you can do with limited resources because it's not generally the the Mm -hmm. purview of the wealthy um and so to have this sort of consumerist element in it really speaks to that like uh sense of origin point in the 1950s which is the rise of a huge amount of consumerism in the u.s and so it's interesting to mm-hmm. those two linked because you wouldn't necessarily expect a high level of consumerism and and quiche in folk uh in folk art and folk culture necessarily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah although i think it also kind of speaks to this reaction to the great depression in an interesting way that i think is also an important part of a lot of Americana, the Great Depression is centered um, almost exactly between the turn of the century and the 1950s, which are two periods that Americana usually is looking back to. And so uh, it's just interesting to me, like it feels like a lot of what we think about Americana actually came as either during the Great Depression or as a reaction to the Great Depression. And so it's looking to the decades immediately before or immediately after the Great Depression when there was prosperity. But like there are definitely, America is a capitalist society and those values are reflected in Americana, mm-hmm. which we've sort of defined as an idealized or stereotypical form of American culture or of the American culture of the white middle and working class of the recent past for a given value of recent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's becoming more and more specific, which I think is necessary, but it's also just funny to like try and remember all the like constraints we've put on it in order for the definition to make sense. Yeah. I do think that, I mean, like because America is a, is a capitalist nation, and a consumerist nation, it's really, really hard to get away from that in any aspect of culture. It's one of those things that just sort of becomes all pervasive. It's not, if you live in a capitalist society, it's, you can't really ever get away from that. So I think that it's interesting to talk about the relationship between uh, the fact that it is a middle-class idealization. And Mm. I think that there's an aspect of middle-class idealization that is that always reflects a little bit of what the middle class thinks the upper class is doing and strives for it and I feel like kitsch is like part of that especially during the time period we're talking about I think now upper class there's sort of like a idealization towards a minimalist aesthetic but previous to like the modern era I don't think that was true and I think that the acquisition of kitsch 
um, reflects sort of the ability, obviously, of the middle class to have disposable income to purchase things that are aesthetic and useless, but also mm -hmm. sort of, I think, a, in a lot of ways, a reflection of sort of like an the striving to reach the upper class from the middle mm -hmm. class and to emulate the upper class from the middle class, but with things that the middle class resonated with, like like the dogs playing poker, I think is a great example because it's a painting and there is a lot of, I think there's a, there's a concept of the upper class having a lot of art mm -hmm. and being are like artistically inclined and having art to decorate their house that improves its worth and all of that sort of thing. And <laughs> the dogs playing poker one, uh, especially like it, all of its subsequent um, meme iterations where it's like dogs playing poker with aliens or whatnot is is a, a really adorable and very wholesome like riff on the like upper class like oh I'm gonna buy this painting that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars so that it like improves my net worth later on as like an investment and mm -hmm. it's more like oh I enjoy this for like it's, a, it's aesthetic quality and nothing else and I think that that I mean, I don't want to say that anybody who buys art is doing it because they want to emulate the upper class. That's certainly not true. But I think that there's like an interesting dichotomy between, I, I think that the middle class is trying to, in a lot of ways, when they buy art and or other things to fill up their house, emulate the upper class, but are sort of like missing the point of why the upper class does it. <laughs> and it's like, yo, I like this. Like, this would look nice in my house. And like, they have... And this is also a product of the upper of the middle class having disposable income and having space mm -hmm. in their house and like all these other things. But also it's, it's just really, I think it's an interesting imitation of sort of the upper class of buying art and art mm -hmm. pieces that are like considered valuable. And then you have the middle class buying things that are like, well, we just enjoy it because it looks nice. And with buying art is what you do if you have money. I think also... Like, I think that extends to, like, the, like, lower and working class as well. But I think, like, there's this interesting aspect to me where, like, I think about, like, like, you're talking about, like, oh, they, like, just buy this art because they enjoy it. And I'm like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, a lot of upper class people buy art not just because they enjoy it, but because they're like, oh, this is an investment and it will appreciate in value. And, like, having the ability to see art as an investment is a hugely privileged thing because the art world is very volatile and also expensive to get into and very arbitrary. And so being able to buy a, like a Degas or something like that is like obviously a huge indication of like wealth and privilege. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think for maybe less so for, for middle-class people because there is more disposable income, but thinking about, my grandparents and other people who spent most of their life as lower and working class that I've known personally. I think there's this, there's also this interesting aspect where objects that are theoretically of little to no value take on value because of the memories associated with them. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, a concept that I'm interested in more generally from, like, an anthropology perspective, so maybe I'm just, like, biased towards seeing it, and it's not actually there. But I think, like, you know, when you think about, like, knickknacks you, like, pick up for, like, a dollar to on a road trip or something, um, like, that is something that is within economic reach for people who have very little little disposable income and you know things that are relatively small like like figurines or even snow globes like or you fridge can, magnets yeah yeah you can sort of put in your house without having to sacrifice a lot of space and so they're like small theoretically worthless they're you know maybe maybe they're like appealing visually appealing to you but they're not like imbued with a lot of cultural significance and mm. like the meaning that they have and the value and worth that they have has to do with 
having a physical reminder of your experiences, mm-hmm. on, like a road trip or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. It's funny. The thing I think of most when I think of Americana is watching American Pickers, which is a TV show on the History Channel where two guys just go around and buy stuff from people's garages <laughs> and barns. And they have a they have the thing that they look for that's like a, an Americana look, and it's either like 1950s like dinnerware and like signs and advertisements and things like that, or it's like the early 1900s like anything associated with farms and that sort of thing. And that sort of ties into that nostalgic and that pastoral sense of a simpler time that I think really is quintessential for uh, a definition of Americana. Yeah. And so sort of to wrap things up, Americana is material objects, customs, experiences, folklore, and conventions that would strike an American as profoundly or quintessentially American in nature, which are maybe necessarily things that they would be expected to have some kind of positive association with. Again, typically nostalgic in nature. So that's sort of our working definition. And I think that's where we're going to leave it for now. We will pick up next episode talking about folktales and urban legends and diving into the episodes we looked at a little more specifically. And we're really excited to get to that. This is going to be a three-part episode, so keep an eye out for the next two parts. And we'll look forward to picking back up with all of you then. But in the meantime, I'm driving. James of the Past podcast is written, researched, and produced by Ray and Mish. You can reach them on Twitter at dreamspastpod.com. Tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Dreams of the Past Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song, Lonesome Ranger. feels like a threat like if I woke up and there was one flamingo in my yard I'd be like do does do the like pink mafia have a hit on me like I would be concerned whereas if I woke up and there were like 10 I'd be like oh it's a prank I see like the Florida godfather yeah I I just would be concerned I don't know it feels threatening I don't know why instead of waking up with like a horse head in your bed you wake up with a pink flamingo yeah, exactly. It's Looking like, in that's your window. Like. <laughs>